Rajim. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. Welcome to the Voice of Islam, where today we embark on a thought-provoking journey through the evolving landscapes of our lives and our societies. In this live show, um, as you're aware, I'll be here until six o'clock with you. Usually we do discuss two topics, and, and today we'll be continuing that. Uh, we'll, we'll be delving into two pressing topics that uh, touch the very core of our existence, actually, because um, first we actually we're going to explore the phenomenon of shrinking families, you know, changings, changing our experience with aging. You know, as 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 family sizes become small and life expect, uh, expectancies rise, the fabric of our traditional support systems is is transforming. What does this mean for our experience of aging, and how are how are our relationships, our our communities, and our expectations of young age shifting in response to these? demographic changes. We'll also delve into uh, the implications of these trends, seeking insights and understanding about the future of aging. We'll also uh, transition into the second hour, which will be from five o'clock onwards. We'll transition into a deeply uh, resonant topic, which is the moral life, finding solace in today's society. In a in a world that you know often seems uh, fraught with challenges and divisions, finding solace and moral grounding is more important than ever. How do we navigate the complexities of modern life while staying true to our ethical compasses? We will explore the avenues through which uh, individuals and communities are seeking and finding solace, purpose, and moral clarity in today's fast-paced and often turbulent society. Join us as we unravel these topics, seeking wisdom, understanding, and perhaps a new perspective on the world around us. Your thoughts, experiences, and voices are an integral part of this journey. So we invite you, the listeners, to share them with us today. Uh, and let's embark on this exploration together here on Voice of Islam. Uh, you can you can contact us. You can call us in. Uh, 0208-687-7878 is the number that you often hear. You can also hit us on our socials at Voice of Islam UK. So going straight into the first topic, which is shrinking families, changing uh, experience with aging. Uh, you know, as time time goes on, the dynamics uh, of family units are transforming, uh, reshaping our, our experience of aging. And this trend that we know has become, ex- you know, especially apparent in recent years with, with, with families shrinking as parents opt for fewer children, resulting in a scenario where the elderly outnumber the younger generation within families. You may be wondering how having smaller families impacts the support networks we actually rely on as we get older, or what role societal trends play in shaping our perceptions of aging uh, and family. So in this show, we will be exploring these these important questions, these pertinent questions about the implications of shrinking families and how this actually changes our experiences of aging. Uh, but before we begin, as you know, here at Voice of Islam, we give you the the Islamic perspective. Uh, with, with each topic that we bring, Islam has a lot to say on it. Islam has guidance on that topic. So before we actually begin, there's a verse of the Holy Quran which comes to my mind um, where the Quran beautifully reminds us of the importance of honoring and caring for our elderly parents. It says in chapter 17, verse 24 to 25, I'll just read the translation in English. It says, Worship none but him, i.e. Allah. 
and show kindness to parents. If one of them or both of them attain old age with thee, never say unto them any word of expressive, any word expressive of disgust, nor reproach them, but address them with excellent speech, and lower your and lower to them the wing of humility out of tenderness, and say, My Lord, have mercy on them, even as they nourished me in my childhood. Before going on about this this show, we will also be speaking to uh, our guests. Usually, we have people who you know who ha- who have expert advice on these topics. We'll be asking questions, you know, with regards to the topic that we have at hand. So, so for the first uh, for the for the first topic of shrinking families, we will actually we actually have two guests um, uh, that that we'll be speaking to. We'll be asking them about um, their studying and 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 how changes in family structures. You know, affect our journey through aging and in and, and all of these different perspectives. So, if you also have questions that you may want to ask or you may want to add perspective to this discussion, then do call us in at 0208687-7878. So, the trend of shrinking families has has actually a far-reaching implications, especially when it comes to uh, the care of both children and elderly. Now, traditionally speaking, uh, you know, extended relatives have played a crucial role in providing this support however it is now dwindling and 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 we know this because um because of course it's it's very much apparent that there are less and less support available uh because there there there's a decline there the, the, the very topic of the show is shrinking shrinking families so the families are getting smaller people are living longer and birth rates are declining so by by 2095 uh, projections suggest a striking contrast, is, uh, and, and, and what it suggests is that a 65-year-old woman may only have 25 living relatives, compared to an estimated total of 41 relatives in 1950. It's interesting because, I mean, um, those of you who are listening in have come from backgrounds where, you know, you, 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 you know your elders have actually migrated to these countries uh, you know, um, from my experience, uh, someone you know who's come from uh, Pakistan, you, we, 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 we know that our elders and and when we speak to them, many of them had 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 very large families, despite the fact that they they were not really well off. So it's quite interesting for me to really think about this, and uh, you know, because when it comes to the idea of raising a family, of course, we're living in a society where there is uh, you know. Uh, you know, cost of living crisis and all of these things. Everything is going. The rents are going up. Everything is going up. So, how did these people actually manage? Uh, you know, one thing could be the, the you know the fact that these people had their own land, they had their their own crops, they had their own you know chickens and you know all sort of different cattle uh, through which they actually survived. But I think uh, those that are listening in may maybe be able to add. Um, you know, what are some of the reasons? why there there is this rise in shrinking families now the impact of that on elderly care is something to really think about because these findings actually signal a significant societal shift because especially when for for, for low income countries where the responsibility of caring for older adults and children may becoming may become increasingly challenging uh, as intergenerational support disappears to meet this growing challenge, there is an urgent need for the development of more formal care systems or institutions that can adequately support um, individuals and families in navigating the changing landscape of caregiving. And this 
this actually includes implementing policies and infrastructures uh, <clears throat> changes that 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 could promote accessibility, mobility, and social inclusion for elderly uh, in- individuals. Also, initiatives such as um, you know age-friendly cities and communities uh, that aim to foster environments where older adults can live independently. Uh, engage in meaningful activities and su- and access the the you know the, the you know the actual support that they need to thrive on uh, is some some something also that we need to we need to think about. Now, but when it comes to Islam, I mean, someone who is a follower of Islam, someone who's uh, you know who's who's brought up in this traditional family structure, um, this uh, there is a newfound recognition of communities which 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 prioritize and honor the diverse needs of elderly individuals. Um, because we know from 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 the very early on in our life, we were taught this prayer: "Rabbi Hamhumakum Arbayani Sagira, Allah, uh, have mercy on our parents as they, you know, uh, had mercy on us when we were young." Um, now, in the Muslim community, there is an there is there there is an, an an underlying expectation that elders should be cared for, regardless of whether they are directly related to us or not. In fact, the Holy Prophet peace be upon him um, once said. And this is reported in one of the traditions uh, mentioned in At-Tirmidhi. It says, if a young man honors an older person on account of his age, Allah appoints someone to show reverence to him in his old age. And we know from 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 the Ahmadiyya Muslim com- community, there are so many initiatives when it comes to the new year or when it comes to Ramadan or when it comes to any crisis that takes place. Um, you know, especially at the times uh, where where everybody is involved and 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 busy with their own families, we have these youngsters who who give their time and they go to these care homes and they go to the uh, you know, the elders. They sit down with them, they speak to them, they give out gifts, and really listen in to what they have to say. Um, and it's it's um, it's quite uh, it's quite interesting how um, how you know a person who's who's given everything. To, for the children in their life now, I'm not. I'm. 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 I'm, I'm of course, I can't speak for, speak for everybody, but but majority of the time, majority of those who are listless again would would actually a- agree on this fact that our parents actually do a lot for us. You know, from the very t- the very moment that a child is born, um, their entire life changes. You know, their their schedule changes. You know, they now they're worrying about this little 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 child that has come into their life. Everything to do with what they're going to wear, from what they're going to eat, their health, and everything, and to the point when they start going to school, they start worrying about their grades, and to the point where you know they, they, you know, the life choices that they are they are going to take, and there comes a time when that child actually, you know, becomes becomes a man or a woman, and 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 then they leave and they have their own jobs, and and what what takes that to a point where, you know. A, ch- a child who's now, um, you know, a well-earning man and he's got a family, to think that it is okay for them to leave their parents in a care home and not to see them, you know, six months or for a year, you know, this is something, this is some, some something that's um, that's alien to us. I mean, that that's alien to the Islamic culture. Uh, to be to be very honest, it's something. I I I would say it's it it is. It it would be sin in the sight of Allah the Almighty to to leave your parents knowingly when you can take care of them uh, in a situation where you know they are they are going through stress and de- de- depression and anxiety. Now, 
I do have to take into account where there are certain circumstances where it's obvious that parents, certain parents, do need special care, and that cannot be provided at home. That may be due to some of the illnesses and disease that they may have, and that, and for that, a care home might be a better, better, better place. That's that's something else. But for just to leave your parents because they are a burden on you, because because uh, you know because they they probably say one or two things extra which they they might not have said. Um, it's it's something that is is contrary to the the Islamic understanding. Uh, so we're discussing this topic, and I and I and I and I I hope that those that are listening in, some of them could actually call in, and we can actually discuss uh, this this changing this changing of our experience with aging, and how is it that we can fix this as a society. Um, also, I was actually listening to Elon Musk um, some time ago, where he was speaking about uh, you know the crisis with regards to um, you know the shrinking population, and there was a time where there were there were articles and there were things things said with regards to you know the, the, this overpopulation, uh, and that's the reason for for you know less opportunities, less jobs, the the NHS crisis, the migrants are coming over, and everything. But he had something interesting to say, and he said that um, he actually tweeted about it as well. That population collapse due to low birth rates is a much bigger risk to civilization than global warming. So the question is, what does he know that we don't know? Uh, and and it's interesting uh, with regards to this population collapse theory that that he's mentioning. I mean, there'll be people who would they, they, they disagree with this, but there are countries, uh, there are countries who are who are who are actually. Um, you know, going through this 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 issue right now, um, Japan, for instance, has had its largest total drop in population since 1968. U.S. Pop- population also flattening as birth rate stagnates. Uh, China's fertility rate, as we all know, rate hits record low. Singapore, uh, you know, birth rates also falls, um, you know, uh, to record low. So, so these 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 are truths that are out there, and and, and really for us to think because. What we know from the scriptures, what we know from the Quran, Allah the Almighty clearly tells us um, that this world that He has created for us, this earth, has enough to feed all of us, enough to sustain all of us. And you know, there, there, this, this question and this, this theory with regards to you know overpopulation and there's not enough for everybody is just something which, uh, which is totally against uh, the facts and, and and totally against the Islamic teachings as we know it. Uh, moving forward, um, we are going to speak on intergenerational relationships. So, uh, one solution to elderly care in the scenario where they have little to no relationship uh, to to no relatives to look after them is is encouraging non-familial intergenerational relationships. Now, intergenerational care is is basically all about purposefully bringing together different generations. And providing opportunities for them, um, uh, for 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 them to take to to actually take part in ongoing activities uh, together and to share experiences that are mutually beneficial. So, for instance, connecting children and older people has been proven to have a positive Im- Im- impact on both parties. I mean, we know it in those houses where the grandchildren uh, and you know um, and, and 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 the grandparents have a relationship. Uh, there, there is this, uh, you know, there's this happiness in the household that cannot just be explained. You know, it, it really has to be experienced. 
because the relationship that a grand grandparent has with the grandchild is is you know that love is actually it's it is really unique and you really see uh, you know um you really see the the health of some of these grandparents because of their grandchildren uh, you know them becoming more active them wanting to go out uh, for walks and and do certain activities play with their grandchildren uh, grandchildren actually helps them uh, physically and it actually improves their health as well um and also the implementation of intergenerational programs such as um that between nurseries and care homes can can create valuable relationships i mean i remember um, there was this trend uh, in our in our in our culture where i mean elders would always have respect but the, but but the fact that children would actually go and sit down and and those who would have the habit of sitting with the elders you know sitting with people who were you know uh, bigger in age than them you would see from their opinions from the ideas that they were a lot more mature than the people who only you know were playing around with their uh, with 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 the children of their age uh with with their own age group and this is something that that was found in basically every family you would sit with your elders you would listen to their advice you would listen to what they had to say about life and you would exchange ideas and this 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 was one of you know one one of the ways in which it actually helped the elders as well and one of the reasons that you've when you visit these care homes you realize the fact that majority of those elders there actually want someone to talk to i mean they've lived their lives and now it's just that loneliness is the greatest threat to them uh, to to their health and everything uh, waking up to to nothing basically to a routine which which doesn't give that doesn't give them anything does doesn't improve them this is where i think it's important that um uh children should pay heed to this because there would come a time when their children would be taking them to that same care home or another care home and leaving them there and that would be too late for them to think um because there 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 are many incidents men, men mentioned in our traditions with regards to this that that um the way you treat your elders the way you treat your parents um it you know it it is possible that that would be the return that your children will give you as well and that, and that at that time it will be too too late now uh moving forward um we we're, we're still speaking about intergenerational care but we'll be coming back to this after a short break uh we'll be going uh and 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 uh, listen to a small clip and we'll come back after that You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Taqwa is a tree that should be planted in the heart. The very water which nourishes taqwa irrigates the whole garden. Taqwa is a root without which everything is meaningless, and if it remains intact, and nothing is lost what benefit is there for a man in indulging himself in the useless activity of claiming with his tongue that he seeks god while he has no sure footing with his lord look i say to you truly and sincerely that ruined is he whose faith is tainted by even a hint of worldliness hell is very close to that soul 
all of whose intentions are not for God, rather some of them are for God and others are for the world. Thus, if you have an iota of worldly adulteration in your intentions, all your worship is in vain. In such a case, you do not follow God, rather you follow Satan. Never ever expect that when you are in such a condition, God will help you. Rather, in this condition, you are a worm of the earth, and soon you will perish, just as worms of the earth do. And God shall not be in you, rather he will be happy to destroy you. But if you, in reality, die by killing your baser selves, then you shall appear in God, and God shall be with you. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful, welcome back to the Drive Time Show here at Voice of Islam. We're still in the first hour of Drive Time Show where we're discussing shrinking families, changing our experience with aging. We have with us, fortunately, Dr. Diego Alberuz Goitrez, who, uh, who is a demographic scholar a researcher and also a social scientist. Um, he's at the currently re- researcher at the Max Planck Institute for Demographic Research in Germany. He received his PhD in de- de- uh, demography from the London School of Economics in 2018 with a short introduction. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Hi, Rahil. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. So the topic that we have at hand and the questions that we, we, we really want to ask you is with regards to your study. I mean, you've been studying how, you know, changes in family structures affect our journey through aging and, 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 and how basically this is shifting dynamics within families and wider society. But firstly, what specific changes in family structure occur as families become smaller? Yes, so based on our study, what we find is that we expect three main changes to happen as we move into the future. So the first one is that the number, the, the size of families will become smaller. So um, that is, we'll have increasingly fewer relatives. The second um, change that we foresee is that the structure of families will change. Whereas in the past, families, family networks were mainly composed of what we call lateral kin, that is siblings, cousins, aunts, uncles as we move into the future we will have increasingly they will be more vertical so you're we're going to have more parents grandparents and even great grandparents alive and the third change is that they will also become older in the same way that populations become older as we move into the future our relatives will be every time uh have a higher age so that the difference between ourselves and Mm -hmm. the age of our relatives will also increase Interesting. And and how do these, you know, this uh, shrinking families influence the way we experience getting older? And and, 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 and also, how does this affect those who care for elderly, uh, elderly relatives? Yes, I think this is really going to have a big influence. And so our study is global and um, in it's going to affect different communities around the world in different ways. So yeah. I can give you an example in the UK now, if you think of a, a woman who is 65 years old, she has around 20 relatives that is including uh, grandchildren siblings and all the relatives in her family and we project that by the end of this century 
she will only have 16 living relatives. So there, it is a change, uh, but if we compare it to other countries where I am from Guatemala, mm -hmm. a 65-year-old woman has 68, so almost 70 relatives wow. nowadays, and by the end of the century, there will be 23. So mm. that is a huge difference in decline in the amount of relatives that one has, and these relatives really matter because they provide a lot of support, mm -hmm. and uh, especially for communities where the support that is uh, expected from relatives is, is large then this is, um, we will have to find a way of supplementing this, uh, this care that is provided, uh, especially for the elderly. And uh, so this isn't an average, but yeah. in reality, there will be many people who will have no relatives at all. So this wow. phenomenon of growing older without kin is also something that we need to consider. I mean, the obvious question would be then, what is the solution? What, what, do, what do researchers and people like you suggest that uh, family should do? Is it, more ch is it just more children? <laughs> so, um, actually, if we look at the way that the, so the projections that are produced in terms of the, the fertility, the way that the, so childbearing will uh, happen in the future, we do not expect that people will have more children uh, moving forward, but rather it's, it's the opposite. So mm -hmm. we're seeing that every time communities around the world are having fewer children. Yeah. And so there are, a couple of things that could be done. I think the so one would be for governments to invest more in the services that they provide that are accessible by uh, the citizens in their countries that are aimed at providing support for parents in terms of taking care of uh, young children, mm -hmm. but also uh, for providing the services that uh, the older members of the population need in terms of access to healthcare, for example, and, um, and this is something that some countries are doing, but even even those countries that are investing in these systems of social support, yeah. they do not always consider the fact that families will become smaller, right? So it's not that everybody will become older, but at the same time, that support that is given by relatives uh, will decrease moving forward. So I think these investments are uh, in the public infrastructure are really important. I mean, the question, uh, um, um, you know, away from this would be where has this, you know, trend from your research, what would you say this trend of smaller families has actually come from? Where has it stemmed from? Yeah. And, and why why has it led it, uh, us to now really thinking about this? Yeah, so this is something that has been, so if we look at it at a very long time frame, mm -hmm. in terms of centuries, it is a very recent phenomenon. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is something that depending on the country, but that we started to see around 1950. Mm -hmm. And um, and the reason why this happens is uh, basically, on the one hand, that people are living longer, and mm -hmm. on the other hand, that people are having fewer children, and those parents that do have kids, because many, many individuals don't have uh, children at all, and those that have it tend to have them when they're older. Yeah. So the combination of these two factors um, leads to families shrinking and but it takes some time for changes in uh, mortality and fertility to mm -hmm. actually affect family structures and so yeah. if we think for example let's imagine that in a given country everybody stops having children now so yeah. nobody has children mm -hmm. like that wouldn't affect the number of cousins that i have or the number of grandparents or the number mm -hmm. of children right now but yeah. we would have to wait maybe 20 30 years we would start to see changes in the families yeah and so, um, what can governments and communities do to help families and older adults cope with these changes currently? So, 
So I think a first step is to recognize that these changes are happening and that it is very unlikely that policies that are introduced, um, for example, to, uh, to motivate individuals to have more children, that it is very unlikely that we will see changes in, in, in the number of children that people have that would offset these changes, mainly because, as I said, there is this gap between the, the demographic behavior and the structure of families. <clears throat> so even if people started having many children now, that wouldn't change the fact that there will be generations that will have smaller families. So I think awareness of this is one uh, is one thing. And for that reason, I'm very happy to be here and be able to talk about this topic. No, thank you and so then, much. Uh, and then investments in public infrastructure and uh, in terms of families, I think also providing, so I would say two things on the one hand, mm -hmm. providing the services to families, yeah. but also thinking about other networks that may be able to supplement the support, such as uh, friends uh, or other types of relative of uh, relationships that we can have and build over our lives. Interesting. And also, have you, in your experience, uh, gone through some of the studies or, or some surveys where parents are asked why they are not having as mu as many children? Is it due to, you know, the the cost of living? What is it? What is, what is the reason? What is the primary reason you would say, or some of the reasons that 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 parents are not having enough children? Yeah, so this is the big question in, in my field. And uh, so there are many studies uh, mm -hmm. that look at this. And some of the factors that have been found to be important is, uh, on the one hand, so you mentioned the cost of living. Yeah. And there are also sort of interference between the personal and the professional life mm. as uh, our jobs become increasingly demanding. And, um, and there are and the lack of policies to support parents mm. or so to support individuals who want to 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 become parents yeah and the pressure of course is particularly high on women but this is not the whole story because even in countries like in the nordic countries in scandinavia that do have very generous policies to support parents we see yeah. a decline in fertility mm. um, so recent studies have also pointed at a biological reason uh, for this, so it may be that the 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 sperm count in men is also declining mm. worldwide. So there may also be a biological component, but most of the explanations point to um, systems that are not uh, organized in a way to support individuals who want to become parents. Okay, there's there's one that that might be a controversial question, but has has there ever been um, you know, uh, sort of a study where you've, or, or, or you know, any suggestion with regards to polygamy, because you know, certain religions, for instance, Islam, there, 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 there is, um, you know, there is a possibility of marrying more than one wife, right? Um, mm -hmm. Do you think that could be a solution? Because, um, you know, or has is is there any discussion with regards to that in your circles or you know, in 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 the research that you're conducting, that that could be a solution to this problem? Yeah, so I think the um, so it's an interesting question, and I would say that the way that we as demographers that we measure fertility, yeah. um, it is always from the perspective of how many children a woman has. Mm. And so actually, the fertility of men, like the number of children that men have, is not something that is often counted. Mm. And what we see is that if we count the fertility from the perspective of the woman, it doesn't really matter how many partners she yeah, has, because sure, sure. you only count the, the number of children. 
And what we see is that there is really not that much of a difference in mm -hmm. the amount of, uh, of children that women have in societies mm -hmm. that are polygamous or monogamous. Makes sense. Thank you so much, Dr. Diego. It was a pleasure uh, having you on. It was a pleasure speaking to you and, and, and listening to your research and the answers that you've given to our question. Thank you so much once yeah. again. Thank you. Take care. Assalamu alaikum. Bye. 0208-687-7878 is the number to call. It's an interesting topic. Uh, there's a lot to learn, um, and and some of the policies um, that that um, that governments could, you know, initiate and can help um, those with with uh, with families, uh, and also the the you know the idea of having more children is something that that's it's not alien to Islam. It's I mean one of the very purposes of 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 one of the very purpose of marriage in Islam is to have progeny and then to be able to raise that progeny in a righteous manner in a in a in a manner uh, where they contribute to the society um, and this is what we find and this is a thing where you know this is some, something that is uh, that is that that need that needs to be spoken about as well but this there I mean going forward uh, with the topic that we have at hand we also wanted to speak about the benefits for the elderly uh, you know few benefits uh, with regards to intergenerational care for both the elderly and children. So companionship, helping to combat depression and loneliness. I was speaking about this earlier. A sense of purpose, the opportunity to share wisdom and experiences. And I was mentioning that this is something that I've experienced you know, with my grandchildren, to be able to sit with them and, and, and they share their experiences and, and stories. And that relationship that a grandchild has with uh, uh, with their you know, grandparent is, is something that's very unique. Uh, mental stimulation, uh, you know, having a change of pace to daily life and keeping the brain active can help to improve mental health and dementia. It's actually basically slowing down you know, the fast-paced world, uh, you know, and, and this is something that Dr. Diego also, you know, alluded to, uh, the workload that, that, that husband and wife has with regards to their work and their, uh, you know, the lifestyle is also some some something which is contributing to this, and and this is this 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 could actually help you know slow slow slowing down and sitting with, uh, you know younger gen generation um, can also help in this regard. So physical stimulation is is also one thing that can help. The energy and the activity of young children can help encourage more physical movements, generally making the adults more mobile and improving their strength. Uh, young children are often the least prejudiced in society so for those who are disabled or suffering from dementia it can help them to see themselves as just another person um, and also some older people who might not have been able to have children or grandchildren of their own get to experience that close uh, relationship with a younger with the young child and many of these be be benefits as 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 we know actually align with the islamic principles of community compassion uh, you know, emphasizing the importance of respect and mutual support. Um, benefits for children would be, you know, encourages communication skills, social skills, develop the language, reading through shared activities, increases confidence and self-esteem, helps develop empathy, care and kindness, helping them to understand and talk more positively about aging and old, old people, improves understanding of disability, learn and develop respect, uh, many children spend less time around their grandparents than in in previous gen generations. I mean, we know from the life of the Holy Prophet peace be upon him. Uh, also, we find you know that his 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 parents actually passed away at a young age. But a woman who who actually took care of of the Prophet peace be upon him whenever she came in, in one of the traditions, when when she came to meet him, the Prophet peace be upon him actually 
uh, put down a you know cloth for her to sit on and gave her respect and you know respect that is due to to towards one's elders and 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 actually parents so with that we'll be going to our next guest we'll be speaking to Dr Roche Hasnain who is a clinical associate professor in the department of disability and human development at the university of illinois chicago assalamu alaikum may peace be upon you and welcome to the drive time show assalamu alaikum wa alaikum thank you for having me thank you so much dr snain for joining us um i mean the topic at hand is is shrinking families uh changing our experience with aging and and the questions that we wanted to ask you was that as an expert in community psychology uh, you know you've carried out research into the complexities of caregiving within muslim families what made you interested in this topic and what have you actually learned yes thank you for your your question and this important uh, forum in respect to the work and the conversation we're having today and i appreciate the invitation to integrate elements of the work that we have been doing here um in regard to muslim families in the context of us i am based here at the university of illinois with the department of disability and human development which is a a program that really looks at the elements of human mm-hmm. justice in the context of people with disabilities and the work that we have um looked at has been to explore muslim families mm-hmm. who have aging parents or grandparents or in-laws who are living with disability mental health conditions and or chronic health conditions and the role that adult children and family caregivers play in the context of the fact that the US population is growing older mm-hmm. the global population is growing older and more diverse and in particular the muslim community when it comes to the research has been very minimal in the context of looking at muslim parents or grandparents in the context of disability which is an absolute must in understanding caregiving and the roles that adult children have taken i have entered this space due to the many conversations we've been having in the community in regard to this role of how do we better support our aging parents mm-hmm. and grandparents in the context of those of us who have immigrated or migrated into other countries outside of our home countries and what that has meant in terms of our family structures and family dynamics where inter generational the multigenerational families are no longer under one roof we are spread across different elements of the map and what this means in regard to extended families versus nuclear families and the makeup of how we as children of muslim families how can we better support our families and the fact of uh being able to engage and not only caregiving but the supports of addressing our aging parents or grandparents needs this work actually is work that has come about due to the dialogues that we've been having in the community but in particular it was also an experience that our own family 
was having in regard to our aging parents and what that meant to myself and my older sister in the context of ensuring their well-being, their dignity, and their, their, their social health, medical wellness as they were aging with conditions that were challenging. Interesting. And how do uh, cultural and religious beliefs actually influence the caregiving dynamics within Muslim families? Because we know from from Islam, you know, there there is a great emphasis on taking care of elders, you know, our rights towards our parents and all of these things. So um, is it a given that or, in, you know, in your study, in your experience, do you think that that comes as help? Because, you know, in your, from young age, your parents are teaching you this. You go to the mosques, you know, the, the study circles and everything. You do get to hear with regards to taking care of elders, their dignity, uh, and, you know, also, you know, providing support and assistance and, and showing compassion and mercy. So what would you say with regards to that? Well, certainly as Muslims, you know, we understand that, you know, this element of Islam being far more than the fact that we are believers of a faith Mm -hmm. and a religion that carries critical human principles that we naturally embrace. Islam is a way of life, and one of its core values certainly is this element of reciprocal, I would call, caregiving in the context or or care in the context of family. And when it comes to our parents or or relatives, this notion of emphasizing that care, I think it's important for us to understand. It's something that we need to further explore through the lens of aging parents and grandparents themselves. What does caregiving mean and is it important to them and seeing their children be the family caregivers to their aging lives as they enter and assi- enter their cycle of life that requires more support. What does it mean to aging parents? What does it mean to our own parents in regard to our role? And what does it mean to be children within a Muslim faith seeing our and, and, and recognizing the role that we take in in, in supporting our, our 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 family members and in this case our, our aging parents. So I think there are some important work that needs to be done in understanding the the perspectives of those of us who are playing the role of caregiver mm-hmm. and what that means to us. Because I think there are different perspectives based on the differences that come about in regard to family structure, mm-hmm. in regard to how connected children or, or parents are to Islam, and how the practice of Islam as Muslims come into play. So I think there are many factors that we really need to look at, and cultural um, family dynamics when it comes to caregiving and how important it is. Um, we need to understand issues related to what it means mm-hmm. um, to be aging in a Western society versus a Muslim dominant society mm-hmm. and how those factors influence 
the caregiving priorities of caregiving mean different things in, in, in regard to the Muslim community versus what it might mean in the U.S. Interesting. And, and, can and how, please, please, please continue. Apologies. Yes, no, you know, I think the intersectionality work mm-hmm. is critical here and recognizing that aging and disability within Muslim communities we really need to understand it through the lived experiences of families who are trying to navigate their care, whether it's insular, which is often the case, insular to families, or how are families seeking or obtaining or exploring other supports to support the well-being of aging parents um, in, 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 in the case of this conversation. So we really do need to understand um, the motivation behind um, the conversation we're having today, which is wonderful, around caregiving practices within Muslim families, and you know the potential future implications and applications. And we need to really begin by producing narratives that can be publicly addressed, rather than addressed in silence within our own families. Thank you so much for that. Um, can you also share some important things that you found while studying how aging Muslim immigrants with disabilities are cared for by their families? Again, you know, I think the challenge is um, those of those Muslim families that are living here and the example of our own family and the example of myself even what that role meant in respect to caring for our parents and being a researcher and educator in a higher ed situation, education, um, higher ed um, institution, um, such as the university that I'm based in, you know, how does one juggle and balance the role of being a caregiver, which really does require full-time support, again, depending on the needs of of aging parents uh, with disabilities or chronic health conditions or mental health conditions and and the role of the caregiver and what kind of supports that someone like myself was trying to seek and discovering that there isn't really too much out there that embraces the need of how can we be culturally and linguistically sensitive to our aging parents' needs. And so a great deal of work needs to really enter this space that we, you know, I, when I first entered this space, I wrote an article that uh, is titled Unveiling Muslim Voices, and the focus being on aging parents with disabilities and their adult children and family care- caregivers in the U.S., only to be surprised when this publication came out, which was in 2010, What we shared and discovered at that time, I was surprised that there was such a giant gap in the research around aging and caregiving within the Muslim communities in the U.S. I found that there were some interesting studies being done in other countries like the U.K. and or Canada. But now we're in 2024 and there was an additional sort of extension of that particular publication that was in the topics in topics in um, geriatric rehabilitation. And then the UK group 
research outreach reached out to to me and our research to publish this new area of work to give recognition to the fact that you know this work really needs to continue and it needs to continue in partnership with Muslim families and researchers who might be from Muslim faith as we partner and engage with multi-sector family informal resources and formal resources. So there is an incredible need to continue this work that we actually put out as early as 2010 and the examples of what we're even discovering here now that we're in 2024 that there needs to be deeper initiatives that impact and engage in the solutions that are culturally and linguistically relevant to our Muslim aging members, particularly when it comes to our parents and our grandparents. Dr. Roche, thank you so much. It was a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for providing us your insight into this important subject. And I hope those that are, that are listening in have uh, actually understood this topic at hand and and the impact that is going to have this 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 shrinking families is this uh, this changing of our experience with aging on 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 society and we do take that seriously and and, and we take care of our elders. Thank you so much, Dr. Hasnan. Once once again, take care. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number to call. We only have about two minutes to go. We're wrapping up this first uh, section, uh, first part of the two hours where we were discussing uh, shrinking families, changing our experience of aging. Uh, we spoke to two guests who gave uh, their own perspectives with regards to this and some of the works and research that they're doing. So if you've just joined us late, you can always go back and listen to this on our website, uh, um, which is Voice of Islam. Uh, simple search on Google will take you there. So in conclusion, our, our exploration of the you know implications of shrinking families, and the dynamics of intergenerational relationships has shed light on the evolving landscape of aging and care. As families become smaller and societal trends continue to shape our experiences, it's crucial to uphold values of compassion, respect, and mutual support, as highlighted in the Islamic teachings and also in, 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 in the teachings of other faiths. We, we have examples, for instance, for us from the life of the Holy Prophet, we see upon him, you know, <coughs> where he would walk uh, with an elderly woman just because she's called him and said I have a certain need and, and he will take her to you know to her household and we have other such examples uh, from from his traditions as well where such care and such compassion was shown to the elders um, and he also said that those who do not respect our elders or do not give the right to our elders and those who do not show mercy to our youngers are not from among us so the importance of caring for elders fostering empathy and nurturing intergenerational bonds resonates deeply with these principles we're coming to the end of the program now we'll be back after you know a short break um do join us here at uh words of islam we'll be discuss discussing our next topic which is on moral life finding solace in today's society so stay with us
You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful, welcome back to the second hour of Drive Time Show here at Voice of Islam, where we'll be talking and speaking about our next topic, which is morality. Uh, this is something which is related to all of us finding solace in today's society. How do we find solace? How do we find comfort in the world that we're li- li- living in? How to live a life of purpose? These are all the questions uh, that we often ask ourselves. And the answer to that from an Islamic perspective will be given. And we will also be speaking to uh, one of our guests who will be giving us his own insight. We'll begin uh, this, 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 this program with the recitation of the Holy Quran. And when we come back, I would, uh, I, I would mention the translation of the verses just been recited. تَفَاخُرٌ بَيْنَكُمْ وَتَكَاثُرٌ فِي الْأَمْوَالِ وَالْأَوْلَادِ كَمَثَلِ غَيْثٍ عَجَبَ الْكُفَّارَ نَبَاتُهُ ثُمَّ يَهِيجُ فَتَرَاهُ مُصْفَرًّا ثُمَّ يَكُونُ حُطَامًا وَفِي الْآخِرَةِ عَذَابٌ شَدِيدٌ وَمَغْفِرَةٌ مِّنَ اللَّهِ وَرِضْوَانٌ وَمَا الْحَيَاةُ الدُّنْيَا إِلَّا مَتَاعُ الْغُرُورِ So the recitation of the Holy Quran, the verses that have just been recited before you, are from chapter uh, 57, and it's actually one verse, it's a long verse, uh, verse 21. And the translation is as follows, it says, No, that the life of this world is only a sport and a pastime and an adornment and a source of boasting among yourselves and a rivalry in multiplying riches and children. This life is like the rain, the vegetation produced whereby rejoices the tillers. Then it dries up and thou seest it turn yellow. Then it becomes broken pieces of straw and in the hereafter there is severe punishment and also forgiveness from Allah and his pleasure. And the life of this world is nothing but temporary enjoyment of deceitful things. So this is the verse of the Holy Quran, uh, something to ponder over, something to really think about, um, and something to live your life by. We embark on a journey into the heart of our existence, uh, exploring a topic that not only resonates with theists, but also those who do not believe in God, the atheists. the moral life, finding solace in today's society, in a world that 
often seems to be spinning faster than we can keep up, where the lines between the right and wrong blur in the whirlwind of life's challenges, how do we as individuals anchor ourselves in the principles of morality? How do we find solace and peace in a society that sometimes appears to drift away from the essence of ethical and spiritual values? How is it possible for us to 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 see in front of us injustices being committed yet cannot do anything about it? Yet here the same uh, institutions tell us and speak to us about ethical and moral values that they claim to uphold. Now, Islam offers us a beacon of light in this quest, illuminating the path to a moral life through the teachings of the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of God be upon him. These divine sources provide us with a moral compass guiding us to live lives of purpose, integrity and compassion. And I must state here that Islam, as we know now, is the name of a particular religion which 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 uh, we know and we understand it to be something which was given to the Holy Prophet of Arabia who was sent for the entirety of mankind. But in reality, when you study the Holy Quran, you would find that the word Islam actually means to submit one's desires, one's, you know, one's, one's whole self to the will of the Almighty God. And in that perspective, the Quran gives examples of all of the past prophets and actually commands us to believe in all of them, that your faith is incomplete if you do not believe in, you know, all of those prophets of Allah the Almighty. So living a moral life is not just about adhering to a set of rules. It's also about cultivating an inner landscape where peace and righteousness can flourish. It's about finding solace in the divine connection, the tranquility that comes from knowing that our lives are aligned with the will of Allah the Almighty. And for that, I wanted to mention a one of one of uh, a quotation from the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the Promised Messiah, peace be upon him, where he mentions what are morals. He he actually defines it, and he sh- he says now one should reflect over what things are worth asking for. Firstly, morals, which raise a person to the status of of a human being. One should not surmise that gentle behavior alone is what constitutes good morals. Creation, which is khalq, and morals, which is khulq, are two Arabic words which give corresponding meanings. The word khalq refers to physical birth, i.e. the creation of one's ears, nose and hair, etc. Whereas khulq, refers to inner spiritual birth as such inner faculties which are the distinguishing factor between a human and non-human are all encompassed in the term khulq. Even a person's intellect and thoughts etc and all their other faculties are part of khulq. Through khulq, <clears throat> a person reforms their human character. If a person had no responsibilities, one would have to ask whether they were whether they were a human, or do, uh, whether they were a human, a donkey, or something else. When a person's khulq becomes corrupted, nothing is left but their physical form. For example, if one lose if if one loses one's senses, they are deemed mad, and are considered to be a human only by virtue of their apparent figure. 
Hence, morals are to attain the pleasure of God Almighty, which is personified in the practical life of the Messenger of Allah, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. For this reason, it is necessary for us to mold our own lives in accordance with the life of the Messenger of Allah, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. These morals are a foundation, and if this foundation is weak, an edifice cannot be built upon it. Morals are to place one brick over another. If one brick is misaligned, the entire wall shall be crooked. Someone has rightly stated, and this he states a Persian couplet, the translation of which is, when the builder lays crooked the, the very first brick, the wall will remain crooked even if it reaches the heaven. One ought to pay close attention to these matters. I have seen many men and analyzed them closely to find that some are generous, but are also prone to anger, and they are easily irritated. There are some who show forbearance, but they are also mis uh, miserly. There are some who are so bold that they will wound a person striking them with bats in a state of anger and fury, but have no traces of humility and modesty in them. Then I have observed some who are humble and modest to the utmost extent, but are bereft of the quality of bravery, to the extent that they become petrified by even hearing about plague or cholera. I do not say that those who suffer a lack of bravery are devoid of faith. There were some from among the companions of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, who did not have the strength and courage to battle. for battle. The Messenger of Allah, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, would consider them excused. There are numerous aspects, he says, of morality. In my address at the Conference of Great Religions, I have addressed all of these aspects clearly and at length. All people neither possess every moral quality, nor are they completely deprived thereof. And he's referring to his book, The Philosophy of the Teachings of Islam, which is uh, easily available on the website alislam.org. And you can, you, you can go there and uh, basically download the PDF, uh, which is absolutely free, where he discusses, uh, it, it, it is basically an essay entitled The Philosophy of Islam, which was written by, in Urdu in actuality by the founder of the community. Uh, for a religious conference of great religions, which, which was held at the time in Lahore uh, on 26th and 29th uh, December 1896. And at the time, there were scholars from Muslims, Christians and, and, and other faiths who were invited to represent their religions uh, at the conference. And they were basically had to deal with, uh, uh, you know, a few questions that were given to them. So, the, so basically five topics related to the physical, moral and spiritual states of man, the state of man after death, the object of man's life and the means of its attainment, the operation of practical ordinances of the law in this in in, in this life and the next, and the source of, sources of uh, divine uh, knowledge. So this is easily available. It is it is also translated into the into the English language now. But going back to um, the the topic at hand, which is um, how do we live a moral life? Uh, and and from the perspective of of religion, um, you know, it is to reflect on on these issues, uh, and for us is to is to draw from the wisdom of Islamic teachings to find ways to nurture our spiritual and moral well being, uh, and this is the purpose of our life, and this is a lifelong struggle um, that Allah the Almighty mentions in the Holy Quran. It's not something that one cl can claim to perfect on 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 day one, but rather it 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 is a jihad in itself. Yes, jihad, the word that you probably have heard. In a in a in a negative connotation, but the very word means to struggle, 
and this life is basically a struggle. It's a struggle with yourself. It's to it's every moment is to improve yourself. And this is what the Promised Messiah, peace be upon him, was mentioning with regards to morals, that that a person may have certain morals that he might you know he might be someone who gives a lot of charity, but there are other aspects to him, for you know that 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 take away the completion of those you know those akhlaq we say the morals that say he gets angry really quickly or he he swears or he's dishonest so there's there are all of these things which which are the test of man and and for which he you know he has to, he has to be answerable to allah the almighty so we're living in a world of endless noise of technology to the relentless pursuits of you know material wealth and the worldly pleasures and it, it is all too easy to lose basically the sight of our purpose. What is our purpose? Yet as believers, it is imperative that we we seek uh, guidance from Islam, from, from the life of the Prophet to navigate these challenges and commit steadfastly to nurturing our spiritual well-being. A key teaching of Islam is the paramount importance of connecting with the divine amidst the chaos of the world. And it's that realization that this life is temporary. And that was the very verse that Allah the Almighty uh, you know, uh, concluded uh, verse 21 of chapter 57 where he says, and the life of this world is nothing but temporary enjoyment of deceitful things. And this is this is the most important fact that every one of us is going to leave this world. And, you know, in the in the in 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 the big picture, as 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 we say, none of this actually matters. You know, none of it matters. You know, your your material wealth, your worldly pursuits, they don't matter. Yes, uh, I must clarify that from an Islamic perspective, the is Islam does not uh, encourage you to become monks and you know you, to for you to live a life of celibacy that you leave everything of the world. But but the the character of the Prophet and his life, his Sunnah, actually tells us that he lived among the people. He was he was a caregiver. You know he was he was uh, the best person that a man could be to his society that he lived in. He, you know, for the, for the for the orphans, for for those who didn't have much in society, the, the very first people that believed in him were the people who were persecuted in society. They had no say. It was the slaves that actually accepted him. So this this goes to show that from an Islamic perspective, and we know that from the companions also. You know, you had people of various color. You had people of various backgrounds. You had people of, um, you know, different material, uh, you know, uh, standing. You know, there there were those who had. Um, you know, excessive wealth, uh, and and you, you had those who who did not have much wealth at all, and and they would depend on the prophet, uh, peace be upon him. They are, they are the people who are known as ashabu sufa who would live uh, in uh, Masjidun Nabawi, which is the you know, the prophet's mosque in Medina, and they would depend on 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 the charity and the people you know the thing uh, the the charity that pp people will give, and the point here being is the fact that Islam actually encourages you to become the best person in both aspects, in your material world as well as in your spiritual world. But the way it tells you to to attain uh, you know, that material success is is based upon honesty and truth and justice. And, and if you do that, you can have mountains of gold, you can have whatever you want in this life and, 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 and you would fulfill the purpose of this life. And how, you know, what can be better than, who can be better than a person who actually is given, you know, the wealth of this, this world and the wealth of hereafter. We know from the example of um, the third caliph uh, of Islam, Hazrat Uthman, that he was he was a very wealthy man. And uh, we know that he, he has at, at times 
for the entire expedition he he paid the entire you know um cost of that you know expedition where muslims didn't have you know uh you know animals to travel on or or things to take with them to to defend islam so you have such examples within islam of of of, of many of such companions but the reality is that they realized that this world is nothing they're not they're taking nothing with them what they're taking with them is their deeds and actions and that's the purpose upon which uh, you know islam stands and 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 the almighty allah reminds us in chapter 13 verse 28 he says verily in the remembrance of allah do hearts find rest and this is something uh, you can run around wherever you want you can do you know whatever worldly pursuits you you, you know from from a religious perspective from something that that uh, you know i'm just only sharing my experience with you it is it is truly in the remembrance of allah that 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 hearts find rest and the society that we live in moral degradation is worse than com- than a complex and 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 serious disease with devastating long-term consequences it, you know we were just discussing you know an hour ago um the shr- the other topic was about shrinking families changing our experience with aging and why you know people are having less and less children and among 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 one of the reasons one of the reasons although there could be many reasons that we had discussed is the fact that sexuality is 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 so uh, you know sex is so easily available in society it's 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 uh it's it's true to the to the point where in islam some this was something that was sanctified you know the relationship with a man and a woman and what comes out of that it's is a it's a it's a progeny which which is your responsibility for the rest of your life that you have to take care of them you have to raise them with good morals and then at the end when your life is about to end there's a cycle they take care of you and they show you the same compassion and mercy that were that was shown to you uh, you know that you show to them but nowadays i mean it's it's obvious the world that we're living in every third post every third scroll on social media would bring you ads would bring you things which 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 was which is un, which was uncommon let's say 50 or 60 years ago and so it refers to the process of declining from a higher to a lower level of morality and it's just become a norm in a way uh, and and the younger generation is uh, is is exposed to it at a very very young age and the whole argument and the whole the whole discussions with regards to children being exposed to you know content um you know in uh, even in schools discussions with regards to sex sexuality at at that age which it, where it is not necessary and that's why for a lot of parents it's an issue it's it, it's 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 really an issue and and so we're speaking about moral degradation um and we're saying that um that the process of declining from a higher to a lower state of morality more morality and is seen as a as 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 a proceeding or uh you know um with the, with pre- pre- proceeding with the decline in quality of life as well as de- 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 declining of societies and na- nations it has destroyed individuals families and and dynasties and and nations alike from within uh, i mean it starts slowly with seemingly harmless choices by some individuals but then it spreads like an epidemic affecting the society at large and moral decline or degradation begins when transcendent moral values which um has proven to be beneficial over time are discarded to vain lustful desires a study of human history uh, suggests that moral decline begins with prosperity um in early america the tendency to drift away from faith in times of prosperity was observed by puritan preacher cotton mather 
in six, uh, which uh, you know who stated, religion begot prosperity and the daughter devoured the mother, meaning the religion teaches people the habit of hard work and ethical behavior through which they then become wealthy. But wealth leads people to become complacent and with that comes sin. Um, I'm going to play a short clip. Um, we're going to be uh, taking a short break after which we will continue to discuss this to- topic. And that clip is with regards to, uh, you know, specifically uh, speaking to the Ahmadi youth and how uh, the youth should be taught, how their moral upbringing should, should be done. So we'll listen to that short clip of two minutes and we'll come back and continue discussion. In this regard, Allah the Almighty states in, in the Holy Quran, Aqim salat inna salata tanha anil fashai wal munkar wala zikrullahi wala zikrullahi akbar Observe prayers Surely prayer restrains one from indecency and many festival and remembrance of Allah indeed is the greatest virtue In this verse Allah the Almighty commands Muslims to observe prayer and declares that namaz is the means of protecting a person from immorality, indecency, and all things he dislikes. Hence, to live a moral life and to be free from vice, and uh, uh, from vice, one must offer the five daily prayers at their appointed time with full diligence and sincerity of heart. The very meaning of Aqim salah observe prayer, is that one must be regular in namaz and offer it with complete focus and in a state of unconditional submission to Allah. In this era, a multitude of vices are prevalent in society. Sinful temptations lie at every turn and every corner seeking to corrupt and destroy the fabric of society. In particular, one major vice that I wish to warn all of you about is falsehood. Falsehood is evident at all levels of society to the extent that many people, in order to fulfill their worldly desires or interests, lie without thinking and consider their untruths to be very insignificant. <clears throat> Yet, Allah the Almighty and the Holy Prophet of Islam وسلم, have deemed falsehood to be a sin of immense gravity and harmful to both the individual and the wider society. Thank you so much for that. Um, we were listening to His Holiness, the fifth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, he was speaking to the youth, the youth organization known as Khudamul Ahmadiyya, um, and explaining to them um, to to basically increase their morality and, and, and live a life of piety and righteousness and the life of truth. We'll be moving now to our, our, our special guest. We were speaking to Dr. Ruth uh, Plackett, who is a se- uh, she's a senior research fellow at University College London in the Department of Primary Care and Population Health. Uh, she's also a psychologist by background and conducts research to explore benefits and harms of social media on young people's mental health. With this short introduction, assalamu alaikum, may peace be upon you and welcome to The Drive Time Show. 
Thank you. Lovely to be here. Thank you so much, Dr. Ruth. Um, we're discussing morality. Uh, how do we find solace? How do we find comfort uh, in this fast-paced life? Um, the questions that we have for you are, what are some of the key ways in which social media usage um, influences the mental health and well-being of young children? Yeah, it's an interesting area because there are some positives and some negatives that we see in some of the research. So we do see some positives mm-hmm. um, in terms of the use of social media. So things that you might predict really, you know, it's helpful for friendships, social connections, building networks, yep. and helping also people express their identity and who they are and create fun profiles and things like that. Um, but there are also some negatives that have been seen in research, for example, um, sort of links between using a lot of social media and depression and anxiety and psychological problems generally. And this is particularly for younger girls compared to, to younger boys as well. Interesting. And um, can you discuss any empirical evidence or research findings regarding the relationship between social media exposure Um and moral development in children uh, and adolescents. Not, not, I mean, I mean, the point is, it's not about social media itself, but what's being, what's being uh, put on social media, or what these mm. children are actually exposed to. So, if you can say something on that too. Yeah, it's not an area that's actually been explored that widely in terms of moral development specifically, mm-hmm. and that is probably because it is quite a complex. Um, concept to actually measure and understand in terms of moral development because it can be so different depending on your cultural background your age maybe your social experiences so it's not something that the literature has particularly focused on but you're absolutely correct the different kinds of things that we're exposed to can can affect people's attitudes um, and beliefs and there has been some what we call more qualitative research that's a little bit more um, less focused on numbers and more with interviews and focus groups with young people that they have expressed concern about being exposed to quite uh, sort of uh, strong or radical opinions that are very upsetting and can be quite um, you know kind of harmful to their their sort of thinking. But they seem to recognise as well though that these are quite um, kind of upsetting or harmful content that they're listening to so there so there's an interesting thing here i think where uh young people are potentially kind of aware about this so we're wondering whether that might be you know is it actually affecting their moral development is there other things is there schooling and their home life and their peers that protect them from this kind of things that are happening online but we don't really know the answer to the question at the minute I mean, what would you say on the idea of choice? Because you see children, uh, young children, right? Um, mm-hmm. We're living in a society where we say, look, let them let them try things out for them to learn. Um, mm. You know, I'm not going to put my, you know, 12-year-old or 13-year-old on, on, on a driving seat and say, look, let them try it out and see, how, you know, where it ends. Mm. So do you think there has to be certain policies in place where we protect these young children, um, you know, and, and, and that, yes, there comes a time in life where they do... You know, they can make choices, but but then there has to be guidance as well with that. Well, what would your opinion be on that? Yeah, I think so. And I think this is reflected in the online safety bill that came out quite recently, um, you know, from the government. And I think that it, it's true. I think there is, there is no justification <clears throat> for children being exposed to some very harmful content, which it, most people would describe as harmful. I guess it can be quite difficult to to kind of for some things to know where the line is i suppose and what's classed as harmful and, and what's not 
Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's where it becomes quite difficult on that kind of heavy policy level. But there are certainly things that we can all agree that we we would say that children and young people should not be exposed to it. And these kind of online safety bills and other bills that are coming out uh, are trying to kind of address this. And and you might have seen as well in America, the um, kind of the big social media companies have been brought up against select committees and things like that to answer questions about how they're actually trying to protect young people. So I think things are moving in a good direction to try and get those those, those undeniably harmful things that, are, that children and young people are exposed to kind of away from social media and protect them against that. Makes sense. And also, are there any um, long-term effects, I mean, on, uh, of say, heavy social media use during adolescence on sort of cognitive development and social skills? Yeah, it's really, uh, again, a really interesting question. And unfortunately, again, we have so (laughs) little data in this area to be able to give you a really firm answer on that, which is very frustrating. But that's part of my research, and I'm hoping to improve upon this. But there are some indications that the... um, it's quite difficult to when you're looking at long-term effects. So I did a study that looked at the long-term effects of social media, but I say this is long-term, this is in sort of a two-year period, and I found no, assa- no association between social media use and mental health. And that might not be just that there is no association. It might just be that over such long periods of time, so many other factors are happening in people's lives that mm-hmm. it actually becomes very difficult to actually assess the specific effects of social media. Mm-hmm. So it is very difficult and we don't quite understand what those kind of effects are. But I, I think in terms of like cognitive and social skills, some of the things you see are there's quite a bit of literature, not necessarily about social media, but about screen time more generally affecting things like attention span. Yeah. And, and that has been something that people have looked into. Also, in terms of social skills, I think one of the things is that's interesting is to think about the direction of that relationship so you might find that somebody who has poor social social skills may then go on to spend more time on social media because perhaps they find that easier which then sort of reinforces sort of more heavy use of social media and it's kind of a self-reinforcing sort of behavior so it's difficult to know what comes before what in that sort of relationship makes sense and um um, how can parents and, and, and educators support adolescents in, in, in developing healthy relationships with social media and navigating its challenges? This can be um, a very challenging and worrying thing for parents and educators. So I think it's really important that we can offer some advice. And from the research I've seen, there are some things that um, you can do. For example, you can uh, try and have some more uh, kind of open and honest conversations with young people about what they're doing on social media and trying to figure out really what makes them happy about what they're doing on social media and what makes them less happy and then trying to encourage them to engage in the more positive experiences and helping them to kind of curate their social media space so getting them to remove their you know not follow any people that are kind of making them feel down hiding likes on social media making accounts private for parents, there are supervision modules, for example, in Instagram, where you can monitor what your child's doing a little bit more. So making everyone a little bit more aware about these features and how you can kind of control your space to a certain extent. Obviously, we know the algorithms make that quite tricky. Also taking breaks from social media, some people find particularly helpful because it can help them kind of reframe what alternative activities could I be doing that might make me happy? Could I go out and play some sports now or hang out with some friends 
in person? Would that make me feel better? And and it can give you a bit more perspective. But it, these are quite, you know, as I said, <laughs> difficult sometimes to achieve because these are individual things that you can do. And sometimes that's undermined by the way these apps work with algorithms and things pushing negative content, which you can't control. So it, it is tricky. Interesting. And lastly, um, are there any specific interventions? I think you did mention one of the policies, uh, something that've, that's come out, mm. um, or policies that could help mitigate the negative effects of uh, social media on a, on adolescent uh, well-being while still harnessing its potential benefits. If you can delve into a bit more, what does that policy actually do? Uh, what is that policy, firstly? Remember you, you mentioning before? Yeah, the online safety bill. It's, yeah. it's quite a generic o- overarch. It doesn't just mm-hmm. relate to social media, to be honest. It's okay. quite broad. But it is trying to install some protections, <clears throat> um, particularly around children being sort of receiving harmful content. So, for example, trying to reduce things like suicide-related content and mm. things like that that can be quite prevalent. Yeah. So it's trying to address that. It's has already been enacted um, in Parliament and so far it seems like little movement has actually really, has it changed the social media companies' behaviours? Maybe not so much because some of the things that they wanted to do um, are quite difficult for social media companies <laughs> to actually do and they, and, and or they, you know, and or they don't really particularly want to do them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's been a, it's been a very, it's a slow process. So it, it is it is a, a step forward to start trying to reduce some of these like really obviously harmful content things that people are seeing. Um, they have, I mean, and also, you know, I mean, I think Rishi Sunak quite recently said he would like to do more in this area and mm-hmm. was quite um, vocal about maybe restricting uh, right. the ages of social media and stuff like that, which is also very difficult because age verification can also be quite uh, quite challenging for these companies. So. There are definitely moves to try and protect this these kind of really harmful content. But the the effectiveness of these policies is is, is so early days. But I think it's also going to prove to be really tricky. Thank you so much. And lastly, lastly, if you could, I just I just clicked on the link of uh, I think your paper, uh, the the uh-huh. impact of social media use interventions. If you could just may, maybe introduce that, what what some of the findings and what you were trying to uh, look for. So that people who yeah, want to read sure. can go and you know benefit from it. Yeah, that that would be great. So um, this was a paper we did where we looked at uh, over twenty studies that had looked at the effects of giving up social media or limiting their time on social media, and also uh, sort of interventions that had used some kind of therapeutic technique like cognitive behavioural therapy to mm-hmm. to help people give up social media. So we found quite mixed results overall with some actually helping people people's mental well-being and some having no effect really mm-hmm. and some actually having some negative effects so some sometimes people when people withdrew from social media they felt a bit lonely and <laughs> they had poorer life satisfaction mm-hmm. which is somewhat understandable perhaps um, and but we did find some positive effects and what we for the studies that and uh, interventions that were quite effective at helping people's mental health the most effective, perhaps unsurprisingly, were the ones that used therapeutic techniques. And then that was followed by those who uh, had sort of full abstinence from social media for, say, a week. And the, the least effective was just giving it up for, say, a couple of hours a day. Mm-hmm. So it did suggest that maybe there is some kind of relationship going on here between social media use and mental health. Maybe it does make us feel a bit better to give it up. But I think the... Um, 
the finding that the therapeutic techniques were more kind of effective suggests that it could be it might be part of a kind of larger issues around mental health so whether that could be around social skills like you mentioned earlier mm-hmm. or struggling to stay focused and time manage and the other things that more generally might contribute to your mental health as well so it was an interesting study to see kind of whether giving up social media for a week would actually work and it seems like for most people probably not and I think one mm. of the things they also highlight is like how realistic is it for you to kind of give up social media long term and what are the long term effects of doing so which were a little unclear and they, and some studies did find that it that it didn't actually help some people it, it kind of was worse for their mental health so it was a very mixed picture and Makes does sense. suggest that we need to kind of think a bit more about mm-hmm. how, how best to, to manage that situation for, for young people who are struggling. Thank you. It was a pleasure speaking to you, Dr. Ruth. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for your insight. Uh, may peace be with you. Assalamu alaikum. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. 0208 is the number to call if you want to share your experience with regards to social media, whether you... I mean, I've got some friends who've, who've basically said they went off uh, social media. There is social media fasting. Um, you know, the, the month of Ramadan just coming coming up is around the corner, um, and they said it did really help them. I mean, it, it did really make them. Uh, it did make them focus on the work at hand and stuff like that. But the reality is, then going back to the same habit of you know using social media for certain you know um, the, the excessive use, of course. I mean, from the Islamic perspective, I think um, nothing really in in essence is harmful. Um, but the reality is, is the excessive use of it, or how how do you use that? And it's something that Dr. Ruth also pointed out as well at the beginning with regards to uh, there are benefits of social media, you know, the engagement, uh, you know, us being able to stay in touch with people, um, you know, especially some people who who don't have many friends, who don't have relatives. Um, the only community or the only sense of, uh, you know, um, sense of family is social media and the people that, that engage with them. Um, but moving forward, we will be going back to... Uh, more specifically, the topic at hand, which was moral life, finding solace in today's society, and religion was would all you know would always argue that morality st- stems from religion. Morality stems from God, and immorality stems from uh, you know uh, godless society. And this is something that that is apparent in the times that we're living in. There's one thing I do also want to mention is with regards to and address His Holiness actually delivered in uh, October 2019 in Germany, uh, which was on the topic of a clash of civilizations, so between Islam and the West. Um, and he, you know, very, uh, you know, openly and straightforward um, dealt with the with the issue and explained that Islam is no threat to the Western civilization, rather it's atheism that is a threat to uh, Western civilization because the Western civilization that we know of um, is uh, is 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 uh, is at the result of of the religious teachings of Christianity and Judaism, and and he spoke about this, you know, at 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 length, and 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 at one place he said that in the world today, and I'm quoting this, particularly in the Western and developed nations, there is a great deal of heated debate about immigration and its effect on societies. Much of the debate centers around Muslims, certain governments, and members of public fear clash of civilizations and believe that Muslims are a threat to their society and cannot integrate into the Western world. 
And then he continued and said that factors that indicate the strength of a civilization include its economic progress, the level of technological innovation, the advancement of means of travel, communication, and intellectual progress of the society. Furthermore, the efforts of the nation of, of a nation to foster peace, stability, whether by virtue of its law enforcement, military proficiency, or by other means, is also a measure of its civilization. And therefore, he, he, he actually went forward and, and differentiated between civilization and culture. And he said that separate and distinct from civilization is nation's culture. Culture is manifestation of the views of a people, their attitudes towards social issues, their practices. And in, instead of being based on material progress, culture is rooted in morality and the religious values and traditions of a nation. And so he mentioned that the civilization is the material, technological, intellectual development of a society, whereas its culture is based on a religious, moral, and philosophical makeup of that society. And he actually cited an historical example of the Roman Empire and, and the early period of Christianity to explain what distinguished a civilization from a culture. He said, due to the material prosperity, urbanization, and the way uh, way its te uh, territories were governed, the Romans were considered to be tremendously civilized and educated. However, the, their sophistication did not educate to, uh, to higher standards of morality. Rather, it was during the early period of Christianity that their people were infused with a progressive culture. Christianity gave people... Um, uh, Christianity gave people guiding principles based on religion and morality, whilst the Romans uh, prescribed worldly laws and limits. Hence, the pro progress and, and, and advancement of the Romans reflected their great civilization, whereas Christianity gave the people a laudable culture. And I think this is something that we can also see within the Islamic uh, Golden Age. What was it that that actually uh, made the you know the Muslims thrive in science, mathematics, and all of these things? It was actually the the culture it, it which was derived from their religious teaching and uh, this is where they derived their morality from and he also um uh, contrary to the you know the popular opinion he also said that muslims had no desire to target or undermine the western civilization and it's very interesting because um as someone who works and and it works in the history department of the Ahmadi muslim community um seeing how the the message of the community and, and the desire for the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, the uh, founder of the Ahmadi Muslim community, to take the message of Islam to the West um, was actually to, 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 to give this beautiful message to these people because this message was for the all of mankind. It wasn't just for, you know, it wasn't just a, um, you know, property of a certain part of the world, you know, the Arabs or the Indians or, you know, there's nothing to do with that. Whereas we know from that the, the, the Prophet Sallallahu claim was, Inni Rasulullahi ilaykum jamia, that I am a messenger of Allah sent to all of you. And I mentioned at the start of this program with regards to Islam, that it is the continuation of uh, the blessed teachings that were brought by all of these great messengers before the Prophet, peace be upon him, and its completion and, and, and the pinnacle happened at the hand of the Prophet, uh, you know, peace be uh, upon him. And then he, he also mentions His Holiness in this address, and I'm going over this because it's really interesting. I want people to go back and read this also. You can find this on pressahmadiyah.com. If you just type talk of, uh, talk of a clash of civilization between Islam and the West uh, on, on Google, you would easily uh, find this article. Uh, this is a sum, sum, summary of the address. 
So he said that rather Muslims sought to emulate the material and technological advancement of the West, rather than Western civilization being cast aside, we are seeing the, the opposite. He said, due to the modern means of travel and communication, the world has become a global village. Um, the advent of television, the mass, the, you know, the mass media, the particularly the internet, has meant that nothing now remains hidden in the world. And so, people who live in economically deprived countries can can see how those in affluent nations live. They are being they are being influenced by the Western civilization and desire to attain similar levels of material ad ad advancement and innovation. And he says, thus, the assertion that Western or European civilization is threatened by the presence of Muslims does not hold water. Rather, Western civilization is influencing other parts of the world, and this includes the Muslim world. Because what do the, what do the West understand from a civilization? It, it understands, you know, the great worldly advancement. If that is the only civilization that they think of, then that is that is actually, uh, you know, influencing other other you know other par parts of the world. And then he he further goes and he mentions. Um, that uh, the, that 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 you know after actually stating that Western civilization was under no threat, he said a fear that Western culture could be challenged by Muslims was a more rational or legitimate fear. Thereafter, his you know he cited various verses of the Holy Quran um, to nullify such concerns, and in a formidable defense of religion and Islam, he basically says uh, that religion was the basis of Western culture, and so it was continued ascent of atheism and disbelief that was changing society rather than the immigration of Muslims. So in, in, in Western countries, uh, I'm quoting this, he says, in Western countries where a consensus is conducted, it shows that people are less and less inclined towards religion or belief in God. Given this, I believe that the rapid increase of atheism is far greater threat to Western culture than Islam. And he continued, and it's, it's of course, it's, it's a long, uh, long address, and I, I, I just, just wanted to cover this uh, briefly. Um, uh, and, and, and in conclusion, he basically mentioned, let us all, irrespective of our differences, join together and work with a spiritual mutual respect, tolerance and affection for the peace of the world and to promote freedom of belief. And this was the message that was given and not just given in Germany, but wherever His Holiness has been to, uh, you know, various parliaments um, and, you know, various, uh, you know, the, the United Nations and and you name it, everywhere he has gone, he has spoken about this message of Islam, which is universal. So, so, so morality at, at its core encapsulates the principles, values, and beliefs that guide human behavior and interactions within society. It, it basically serves as a compass that directs individuals towards actions deemed right or wrong, just or unjust, virtuous or immoral. While the specific or moral codes may vary across culture, religions, and philosophical traditions, the essence of morality lies in its universal pursuit of what is considered good and ethical. It involves not only how we treat others, but also how we perceive and respond to the world around us. Now, ultimately, morality invites us to aspire towards high, highest ideals of human excellence, fostering a sense of interconnectedness, integrity, and responsibility that transcends individual interests and contributes to flourishing of a huma humanity as a whole. In the current times that we live in, um, this question of morality is very important. Why I say that is that all of those avenues, all of those institutions that were claiming to be the flag bearers of humanity, human rights, what is happening right now in the world should 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 make people question that. That is that all of the masks have basically fallen off. And despite the fact that the majority of, because what is a government? It, re, it is a representation of its people. When the majority of the people are against 
you know, uh, atrocities being committed in, in in certain parts of the world. Uh, currently now, you know, whether it's Ukraine or whether it's, uh, you know, in Palestine and Gaza and, ha- and, and, and depriving people of food and water and, and children dying, you know, um, uh, from not having, uh, you know, enough milk and not having enough sustenance. This this really tells you about the you know the so-called humanity that these flag bearers of humanity actually claim, and it's actually the failure of United Nations, uh, you know, in 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 reality, that it it cannot uphold justice, it cannot uphold, um, you know, the human values that a you know it claims to do so. So I mean, this is something. Uh, this the question of morality is something that's not going to be. Uh, that that we're going to be able to deal with in this particular program. There's so many, you know. This 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 is a question uh, that since the beginning of mankind, the philosophers have discussed. You know, the the prophets have actually shown it, and this is a difference. The and this is what the, the difference the Prophet peace be upon him uh, has explained. He said that philosophers merely contemplates, and he delves into the you know the ideas of how and why and all of that. Whereas a prophet shows how it is to be done. He, he brings about that change in society that, and whether it was Jesus, whether it was Moses, whether it was Abraham or the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. So I have a small clip also, uh, which, was, which is with regards to the control over the incentives of, for the accumulation of wealth. Uh, I, I believe this is also uh, from His Holiness. Uh, um, uh, this is from the Economic System of Islam. Uh, it's a small portion uh, from, from that book. And we'll come back after this uh, short break. Quran likens the pursuit of wealth to a cloud in the sky that gives a farmer the hope that there would be rainfall, which would turn his fields green with new crops. But when it actually rains, it is either too much or too little. In both cases, instead of making a lot of money, the farmer witnesses the ruin of his crops because of too much or too little water. The Quran then reminds us that not only is such wealth of little use in this world, It also leads to severe chastisement in the hereafter for those who indulge in harmful occupations or pastimes. But those who restrain their base impulses are forgiven by God and are given the pleasure of His nearness. The verses quoted above also contain a warning that a life given to worldly pursuits is no more than a mirage. We are thus cautioned against wasting our life in chasing fleeting and unreal shadows. We should not allow ourselves to be blinded by base passions. We must never lose sight of God's pleasure, which should always remain our supreme goal. It is clear that a person who follows the Islamic teachings would shun above motivations. Any wealth that he might accumulate would be devoted to noble causes that help to bridge the gulf between the rich and the poor instead of widening it. Such a person has little reason to covet wealth for selfish ends. A man's desire to earn money arises out of basically three impulses. Number one, to meet his own legitimate needs. Number two, beyond meeting his personal needs, he might desire money with a view to helping mankind and earning God's pleasure. Or number three, he might seek money to fulfill vain desires described above, meaning personal pleasure, self-indulgence, pride, or plain greed. It goes without saying that only persons driven by the third impulse would stoop to unfair and foul means and would exploit others. This situation would be avoided if the first two reasons for earning money were dominant. Anyone who earns just enough to satisfy his own needs, or who spends the excess wealth for helping others and other good deeds, would not hurt other individuals or his nation in general. Interesting. Um, 
I mean, as humanity navigates the complexities of the modern age, it becomes increasingly essential to recognize the seductive pull, the, the seductive pull of distractions and to actively cultivate spaces for moral reflection, uh, you know, meaningful connection and inner peace amidst the chaos of the contemporary world. To shed some light on the consumerism-driven uh, nature of our society, here are some facts which might make you think a little. Now, Amazon, as we all know, we probably have a subscription as well, uh, some some of us, announced sales of 574.8 billion US dollars in 2023, a 12% increase from the previous year. Customers uh, complete 28% of Amazon purchases in three minutes or less and 50% of purchases in less than 15 minutes. Amazon is currently the most trusted brand in the USA, even though 60% of its sales are through independent sellers. As per the most recent UK statistics, the proportion of sales made online actually fell from 26.8% in December 2023 to 24.8% in January uh, 2024. Apple generated about 383.2 billion uh, revenue in 2023, 52% of which came from uh, iPhone sales directly. Fast fashion, which refers to rapid production of inexpensive, trendy clothing by mass market retailers in response to the latest fashion trends, is the third biggest manufacturing industry after the automobile uh, and uh, and technology industries. Uh, so, you know, this this goes to show, uh, you know, this sh- sh- has light on the consumerism-driven nature of our society in the world that we live in today, and and it really should make us ponder and 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 really make make should make us think, uh, because the prophet, uh, the holy prophet of, of Islam, sallallahu peace be upon him, provided us with invaluable guidance on the cultivation of inner peace. He said, "The world is a prison for the believer and paradise for the disbeliever. The material world may." offer temporary pleasures, but true spiritual fulfillment lies in transcending worldly attachments and focusing on eternal treasures of the hereafter. Uh, and as the Almighty says in the Holy Quran, that we that which you have shall pass away, but that which is with Allah is lasting. Though temporary in nature, uh, worldly possessions can become a trap for man with their pursuit, leaves him devoid of the love of God. It is narrated by Abu, Abu, Abu Huraira, a companion of the Prophet, that richness is not an abundance of worldly goods, rather richness is contentment with one's lot. So this is something that uh, I, I want our listeners, uh, I want to leave uh, our, li- our, li- our listeners with, and especially myself, to, because to, to really ponder over, we think uh, being people of religion, being pe- people of those who follow follow religion and practice it daily, that we cannot have these desires, we cannot have these, um, you know, these 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 uh, materialistic pulls. We do because we are on social media. We, you know, we we're part of this society. But this this should come as a reminder uh, that rel- relentless advancement of all kinds and ever accelerating pace of life in the modern world uh, has caused a noticeable not noticeable surge in anxiety, which stems from the pressures of having to keep up. And with that, we're coming to the end of the program. We've spoken to. Various guests in the first hour, we uh, we discussed uh, the topic of shrinking families, changing experience with aging. What are the reasons of 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 small fam, fam, fam families, and what impact does it have on our elders? And so in this hour, we discuss moral life and finding solace in today's society. Uh, we're coming to the end of the program. Uh, I would like to thank uh, all those involved, and especially the producers 
of of the two two programs uh, Faryal Janud uh, Nasser and the second uh, pro- producer which uh, I don't have the name in front of me at the moment F- please forgive me we're coming to the end of the program uh, thank you so much for all those that were involved and the message that I would like to leave everybody with is the verse of the Holy Quran which we began with this program with which ended with and the life of this world is nothing but temporary enjoyment of deceitful things assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh may peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all